Well, good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, we'll be in James chapter 1. You can flip it open or turn it on, whichever avenue you choose to use. Uh, my name is Aaron. It's as Seth said. I get to be the teaching pastor here and uh, super excited for this morning. Uh, actually, you might notice something for the first time. Our children are getting to kind of use uh, the space that we're building out for them over there. So if you notice during the service that you hear some little voices or some screaming or just some kids laughing and having a good old time, um, that's just part of being a church plant, and that's what we do around here. So eventually we'll get drywall all the way up with sound uh, proof insulation in there, and that will help a whole lot. But as we've said several times around here, uh, a church with small voices is a church with a future. So we love it, and uh, if we hear them on the other side, it means that God has his hand on Living Hope, and it's going to be on for a long time. So uh, thank you also just for praying for myself and Joe and uh, for our sister church up in Marysville, our sending church up there. It's just been a challenging week, especially for them. And so at the end of our service, we're going to take a specific few moments and just pray for them um, and won't really get into detail on that. But as you think about Living Hope Church in Marysville this week, um, really lift them and their leadership and their folks up in prayer as well. Um, just some challenging times over there. But we're starting a series today called Talk is Cheap through the book of James. We'll spend five weeks in this book um, just looking at specific sections of scripture found in each chapter. And so if you want to stand with me um, in honor of reading God's word, one of our values at Living Hope here is that we are for the gospel, which means we, uh, we elevate and celebrate the finished work of Jesus, but we also highly respect the word of God as well. James chapter one, we're going to start in verse 19. And we're going to read down through verse 25. And James writes this. He says, My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, word which is able to save your souls. Verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not for a forgetful hearer but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you again. Lord, for your word, and God, I pray now, Father, as we walk through these verses in your word, that God, you just illuminate your scripture today. God, the Bible says that it's alive and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and I pray that that manifests itself in this room. Lord, give us the ears we need to hear your word today. Father, the hearts we need to receive your word and the hands and feet that we need as we leave here today to chase after Jesus with everything we have. Father, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Most people don't know this about me. Some of you might, but I actually have two older siblings. Um, I have a brother and a sister. They've been here to church before. You probably met them and didn't even realize that they were related to me because we're a little bit different. Uh, but two older siblings, both of them about 10 years older than me. And uh, this week, as I was reading James 1, I was just continually reminded of a specific moment in time in my life where my parents would often leave and go run errands, or they would go on a walk together, or maybe even go see a movie, and they would always leave me with my older sister. And if you have older siblings, I'm sure you can agree with this sentiment that I hated it, because I could not stand being under the care of my older sister. 
Looking back now, the relationship that we have, she was probably pretty nice to me, but at the time I could not stand the scenario, therefore I could not stand her. So typically what I would do is the moments my parents would walk out the door, they'd get in their car, drive down the driveway, shut the garage door, I would immediately erupt in chaos. You look at me now and you're like, no, yeah, (laughs) I would go nuts on my sister. And the one thing that I always did is, to the best of my ability, as about an eight or nine-year-old, when they would leave and I'd erupt in chaos, I would call her every single name in the book that I knew at nine years old. You name it, I let her have it. Well, that went on several times, and typically what would happen is mom and dad would come home a little bit later, and my sister would be just distraught and telling them, you're not going to believe what Aaron said. You're not going to believe what Aaron did. And she'd repeat these things over and over. My parents would sit me down and say, Aaron, did that really happen? I'm the baby of the family, so I denied it. Therefore, I got away with it. Until one time. Yeah. Until one time. About nine years old, my sister wised up a little bit. My parents left. I went on my rampage, and that brat recorded me. And friends, she didn't only record me. She used one of my own toys against me. Do you all remember the small red and white Fisher-Price tape recorder? Many of us probably had one or your children had one. It just carried a little cassette inside. You could speak in it like you were Darth Vader, right? We would do that sometimes. But then you could record yourself singing or your favorite song off the radio. Just a little toy. And somehow my sister had got a hold of that and recorded me calling her every name in the book. My parents got home that evening. This is burned in my memory. My mom sat me down at the kitchen table. My sister proceeded to say everything that I did and called her, to which I again denied. I'm the baby of the family. I knew I was going to get away with it until my sister at 19 years old reached underneath that table and plopped my Fisher-Price recorder right there, and I knew I was done. My life flashed before my eyes. She pressed play, and I heard my voice come out of those tiny little speakers. And I can still see my mother's face, my dad towering in the background over me with his arms crossed, and my mom looking directly at me and saying, Aaron David, is that you? Oh, my man, it felt like time stood still. I said, no, I have no idea who that is. (laughs) Needless to say, the following moments were not the greatest in my life. What's the point of just a goofy story like that? It's a simple question that are really a thought that I want us to to consider this morning. And it's this, how we respond when confronted with truth makes all the difference. When truth is brought to light, when truth is brought to the forefront of our minds, how we respond to said truth makes all the difference. Because we're really left with two options when we're confronted with truth. We can deny the validity of that truth, and I have no idea what that means. That doesn't apply to me. Or we can lean into that truth, and we can adjust our lives accordingly. And that's the theme of our passage for today here in the book of James chapter 1, on how we respond to truth really does make all the difference. This letter that we're going to spend five weeks in here in the back of our Bible is written, go figure, by a guy named James. 
James, if you're unfamiliar, was the half-brother of Jesus, just to make sure we're all on the same page. So Jesus was born through Mary, who was a virgin. He had an earthly father named Joseph. Therefore, uh, as Mary and Joseph then got married, they had other children. So any other children then would be Jesus's half-siblings. James was one of those. He was one of the half-siblings of Jesus. Matthew 13, 35 talks about that if you want to read it. It's interesting to note, too, that James, during the earthly ministry of Jesus, so Jesus walked on the earth for three and a half years, teaching, preaching, sharing the kingdom of God, that the Bible actually says in John chapter 7 that James and his many other brothers and sisters thought he was crazy. They thought that Jesus was a madman. Now, just put yourself in that scenario. Sometimes you read that and you're like, yeah, but it was Jesus. You can imagine what he did. Imagine if your brother or sister came to you this afternoon, you go into lunch together and they said, hey, um, side note, got something to tell you this week. Um, I'm the Messiah, and I'm going to save the world from their sins. What are you going to think to yourself? You're an idiot. James thought Jesus was crazy, and it actually wasn't until after the resurrection, Acts 1 verse 14, that James became a believer in what Jesus was doing and what he said and what he taught. James, it's also interesting to note, the entire book of James is really going to sound very works-based, right? You do this, you earn God's favor. It's not really what it is, but it's what it sounds like. And he talks a lot about practical Christianity, how it really plays itself out. But it's interesting, James, if you look historically, he had a really cool nickname. His name was Old Camel Knees. Old Camel Knees because it's said that James spent so much time on his knees in prayer that his knees became calloused over and very large. You see, he actually, although this book is very practical and seems works-based, James put a heavy stake on the faith that we have in Jesus and manifested that by how he spent time in prayer. James is one of the most incredible books in the New Testament because really what we're going to see here is James is going to teach us, look, if you claim that Jesus is your Savior, your life should overflow with that truth. That the way that you walk, the way that you talk, the way that you interact, the way that you live, that should all be an overflow of this relationship that you have with Jesus. These two things work together. Faith overflows to works. Works is a manifestation of the faith that I claim to possess. And here in James chapter 1, what we're going to see here is James is really going to paint this picture for us of when we approach the Word of God in its entirety, the Word of God in its entirety, how our lives need to look as that's lived out. If we hear the Word of God, read the Word of God, are confronted with the Word of God, confronted with truth, how do we respond to what is brought to our attention? I just want to jump right in because we've got a lot of stuff to cover today. And here's the first thing that James teaches us in verses 19 through 21. He talks about the importance of our response to the word. Look at verse 19 with me one more time. James starts and he says, My dear brothers and sisters, that's that's you and me. That's a term of endearment from Christian to Christian. Brothers and sisters, understand this. The first 18 verses of this book, James is talking about trials and suffering in the life of a Christian. How do I suffer well? How do I go through trials well if I'm a follower of Jesus? If they're a natural part of the human existence, how do I do it well? And towards the end of those first 18 verses, he basically leads us to the conclusion that we run to the Lord in our trials. We run to the Lord in our sufferings. We saw that in Psalm 23 the past six weeks. We run to the Lord, and the Lord is found in his word. That's where we find Jesus. So we we run to the word of God in our trials and sufferings, and that's where we find comfort, hope, and the presence of God. And then in verse 19, he, he makes this shift. That's why those words, understand this, are there. It's almost like the word therefore. Because this is true, now let's talk about this. James says, now, we've run to the word of God. 
how do we respond to what we are reading? If we run to the Word of God, how do we respond to what we're reading in God's Word? Look at the second half of verse 19. It'll be on the screen. Therefore, understand this. Everyone, it's all inclusive. Here we go. Should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, typically, we take those three little ideas and we attach them to Christian character. That's where we get that phrase. um, It's something like you have two ears to hear, uh, one mouth to speak, so listen twice as much as you talk kind of a thing, right? We all, well, that's no problem for introverts. You extroverts, you need to work on that a little bit, right? I'm an introvert if you didn't know that. That's typically, we take that verse and we apply it to like Christian character, right? This is how Christian character plays itself out. Listen more than you speak kind of an idea. It sounds pretty good, but that's really not what James is talking about. Because this verse is actually tied to our understanding of the word of God. If I'm confronted with the word, how do I respond to it? What does James tell us? Quick to listen. Slow to speak, slow to anger. What does that mean? Let's talk about the opposite for a second. Traditionally, when we're confronted with the truth of God's word, what do we traditionally do? Rather than be quick to listen, what are we? We're slow to listen. Why? Because if we're honest, sometimes we really struggle with the truth that a 2,000-year-old book has any relevance to our lives. That's why often, if we're not cautious, that we can approach the preaching of God's word in a posture of, that is, means nothing to me. We can approach the personal reading of God's word with very um, flippant regard. That's why sometimes the extent of our reading of God's word is a, maybe a verse that happens to pop up on my lock screen on my phone. Because we just think to ourselves, you know what, eh, it's not relevant to me. So we're slow to listen. What's the second thing he says that we need to be slow to speak, but how often are we quick to speak in response to what we have heard? How often maybe do we hear something in God's word, and here's what we say, and I do this too. I know God's word says this, but. I know God's word teaches this, but you don't understand what I'm going through. I know God's word says blank, but you've never walked in my shoes. I know God's word says this, but you haven't experienced what I've experienced. Rather than being slow to speak, we're quick to speak. Here's the third one. What does he say? Slow to get angry. I can't believe they would teach that from the Bible. I can't believe that they would really believe those things that that old ancient book teaches. I can't believe they do that. That's so mean. That's so exclusive. That's so inclusive. Choose your word. I can't. And we get angry in response to what the word of God says. But notice something here. In verse 20, James addresses it. For human anger doesn't accomplish God's righteousness. You see, the, the, the goal of the Word of God in a relationship with Jesus for you and me is for Jesus to produce His righteousness in me, for Him to change me from the inside out the more I saturate myself in His Word. So friends, the first thing James wants us to see here is how we respond to the Word of God makes all the difference. The correct response is this simple blueprint. Quick, slow, slow. Quick to listen, slow to speak slow to anger. And if we go to God's word with that posture, it changes us. It's this idea of having an open, open ears, a processing mind, and a receptive heart. And then James keeps going and he says, and if you'll do that, when you read the word of God, when you hear the word of God, here's going to be the result. James 1.21. Therefore, there's our word. You've probably heard this phrase before. 
If you ever see the word therefore in the Bible, ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore? If you've never heard that before, write that down. It's very helpful when studying the word. What's the therefore, therefore? Therefore, basically what it does is it takes our current statement that we're about to read and it ties it back to what we just read. All right, so it's like a bridge between two, two Bible verses. And here's what he says. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent, what do we do? Humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So what's the proper response? I'm quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. What's the proper response? James says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to rid yourself of all moral filth. That's pretty cool. What is that? That's an internal cleansing that the word of God is going to do in your life. The more you hear the word of God, the more you read the word of God, the more you respond to the word of God, Jesus is going to change you. This book is alive. It's active. The Bible says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can penetrate the, the joints and the marrow. What does that mean? It means you consume it. It changes you. It's so critical and so important. Here's the second part here. He also says not only ridding yourselves of all moral filth, here's what else he says. Ridding of the evil that is so prevalent. You see, the moral filth is the internal, the evil is the external. Not only is Jesus going to change what, what is in you, but he's going to begin to change what you consume, what you want to consume, the things that you want to take into your life because his word is changing who you are. Here's a little illustration for you. Monday's tomorrow, so many of us will probably start a diet again. Congratulations. <laughs> We've made it to February and failed 12 times. We'll restart tomorrow. It'll be good. And imagine tomorrow that you begin your new diet, your new whatever you're on keto or CrossFit or some of that weird stuff we all do. I don't know what it is. And you start your new diet, and your new diet is this, that you're going to eat fruits, vegetables, and no processed foods. Good luck. I can't. I've tried. But Pop-Tarts. So you start your new diet, and, and for a month straight, man, you're eating fruits, man. You're eating your apples and your oranges and your bananas. You're going crazy. You're eating vegetables, celery, because, ew. And you're eating, man, you're eating carrots and doing all radishes. I don't know a lot of vegetables. I should have wrote vegetables down that I could remember. Anyways, so you're eating a lot of vegetables, man. You're eating no processed foods. So you're buying some of that, like, Ezekiel bread and all that good stuff, all that strange things people eat. Anyways, bless you. So you do that for a month, and then imagine... At the end of your month, you say to yourself, I've been good. I've, man, I followed my diet. I'm just rocking and rolling. And you go to Meyer and you pick yourself up a pack of Ho-Hos. <laughs> and you eat the whole box. What happens to your body? Don't say it out loud. Your body will absolutely revolt. Take it to the spiritual. The more we consume the right things the more we learn to not input the wrong things because our bodies will begin to revolt. And we begin to watch things, listen to things, participate in things, and these things, and we start to feel a little squeamish and get uncomfortable because like, whoa, I don't need that in me. My body's not, my spiritually, I'm not used to those things. That's what James is talking about. Look at the second half of verse 19. Humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So let's bring this all together. That's what he's doing here. I'm confronted with the word. How do I come to it? I come to it with a posture of humility. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. I let the word travel from my ears to my heart. That's why we pray every Sunday before we share in this moment that the Lord would give us open ears not only to hear his word, but hearts to also receive it. Because if the word never makes it the 18 inches south to your heart, it doesn't matter. It's got to go from here to here to make a difference in who you are. 
Your heart is the internal compass of your being. Your intellect can only take you so far. You need your intellect to transfer down to your heart to change who you are. Then James is going to get real practical with us down in verse 22. Let's jump there. We know the posture to approach the Bible. We know why we do it that way. Now that we've received it, what do we do? This is my favorite part. Let's talk about the reason for the word. Verse 22. He says, but, but. So he's tying everything together. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I think this is one of the greatest threats that's facing the American church today. There's a lot of things that I think we're, we're dealing with, but this is one of the big ones. Because here's what happens. If we're not careful, we can go to church, we can hear the word, we can read our Bible app every morning when we get up, we can watch Christian movies, which I hate, P.S., can't stand Christian movies. They're weird. Some of y'all are like, I'm not coming back to this church. You can go watch Fireproof and I'll watch something else. Anyways. Sorry, that was terrible. Pastor Joe. Goodness gracious. We can go to church. We can read our Bibles. We can watch Christian movies. You can listen to Christian radio. You can do so many different, quote, Christian things all the time. Surround yourself with it. But the problem is, if the word never makes its way from our, from our head to our heart, it does nothing. And I think the sad thing is, and here's what James is warning us of, is if, you're not, if your life is not exhibiting the overflow of the word that you're receiving, you could be potentially deceived. There's a, there's a warning there for us. Let, let's just embrace that. Let's not get offended by it, right? Remember, slow to anger. He, he's warning us. You can implant all of these things into your mind, but if it never makes its way to your heart, potentially you are deceived. That word deceived there in the original language means to make a false assumption about something that's just not true. And how often do we go to church, do Christian things, surround ourselves with all of these, quote, Christian ideas, but the reality is, is that the word has never made its way into our heart and Jesus isn't changing us. You can do Christian things and not be a Christian. That's the fear, and that's what James is warning us here. Now, let's talk about really good in depth here. He says there's two responses to the word, doers and not doers. It's pretty simple. That's it. Simple illustration. If I tell my oldest daughter, Sophia, who's seven years old, I said, baby, you need to go home after church today and clean your room. What, what kind of options does she have? She can go clean her room or she can not clean her room. In both cases, she heard me, but her response to what she heard is the critical part. But notice James keeps going here. We're going to, man, we're going to really dive into some of this. He, we, read the word, we read this idea of doers of the word. And, and traditionally, I know this is where my mind goes. I read the word, Jesus says to do something, so I do it. And then the next day, I read the word and Jesus says to do something, so I do it. And it becomes a checklist for me. Jesus said it, I do it, I'm good. Sometimes I think that's how we can live our Christian life. That's our Christian existence. But I think there's something a little bit more here that James is pointing us to. Rather than a checklist of obedience, I think James is trying to get us to see a lifestyle of obedience. And there's a difference there. A checklist is legalism. That's dangerous in Christian life. A lifestyle is the overflow of my relationship with Jesus. Here's the difference. Think about a doer of, a, a doer of the word versus a checklist. Um, some of you are teachers in here. That's your, your vocation. You know a good teacher doesn't simply go to school Monday through Friday for a few hours and just teach a couple classes. That would just be going to teach. But a teacher does more. A teacher engages in meetings after school. 
A teacher participates in other activities outside of the classroom time. A good teacher is probably spending many of their evenings and maybe on the couch grading papers and writing responses to students for work that they've submitted. A good teacher in the evening is probably thinking about the interactions they're going to have with students the very next morning and wondering and really processing, how can I serve my students well this next day? You see, a person that just goes to teach, it's just a task and a checkbox they check off. But a teacher... It encompasses the entire existence of who they are. You see, we can approach Christianity with this idea of, I just, I just do things for Jesus. That's dangerous. But James encourages here, no, no, no. Uh, be a doer of the word. Be a doer. Let it consume your lifestyle. Walk with Jesus and talk with Jesus. And as you're approached with his word, try to interact with that on a regular basis. Let it overflow from who you are. Not so that you do good Christian things, but you walk obediently with Jesus. And then I love this illustration that James gives right here. Look at verse 23. He says, because if anybody is a hearer of the word and not a doer, there's our contrast there, hearer versus doer. He is like somebody looking at his own face in the mirror. And here's what's pretty cool. In this time period, they didn't have mirrors like you and I actually have. You and I, if we need a mirror, we just head down to the Walmart, go to aisle like C7, you pick up a mirror for 10 bucks, you come home, you're good to go. These people, uh, their mirrors would have been like a piece of metal. So imagine this large piece of metal that they would have then taken this hammer and they would have tried to pound it as flat as they possibly could, try to get it as flat and smooth as they could, and then they would polish their mirrors up. That's going to make sense here in just a second. But listen to this illustration that he, he uses here. He's like somebody looking at his face in a mirror. Now this morning, whenever you woke up today, hopefully we think some of you were questioning it, but you got up and you looked in a mirror. Some of you are like, I didn't. People can tell, right? <laughs> Just teasing, but we know. Anyways, you got up and you looked in the mirror and you saw yourself and you thought, wow, what a masterpiece. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, you saw yourself and you're like, oh my gosh, help me Jesus. What is wrong with my face? But you get up and you look in a mirror. We all do it. Why do we do it? Because there's purpose in what we're looking for. When you go up in the morning and you look in the mirror, look at verse 24. James says there's two kind of people that look in the mirror in the morning. Here's the first one. You look at yourself, then you go away, and you forgot what kind of person you were. James says the first person wakes up, looks in the mirror, sees their nasty face, goes, yeah, and walks away. You see the hair that's kind of flipped up on the side. You got a little booger hanging out your nose. If you've got toddlers, you've got a sucker attached to the side of your head. We, hey, we've all been there. Your beard needs trimmed. All that good stuff. You get the picture. But what's the purpose of the mirror? The mirror is so you can look in it, see what needs adjusted, make the adjustments, and then go about your day. That's the purpose of a mirror. That's why we do it. But this person looks, sees, leaves. They know things need to change, but they're like, no, I'm not interested in doing that. I'm just going to go about my day. How often we approach the word that way? Ouch. We hear the word, we read the word, we're moved by the word, the worship was powerful, we heard the word through song, and then what do we do? We get in our car and we forget. We don't adjust our lives accordingly. The word never makes it from here to here. That's the critical piece. The second person is different, though. Look at this, verse 25. Here's the contrast, but the second person, what's he do? The one who looks intently, looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it. Notice the two phrases there. Verse 25, the hearer of the word simply looked. The doer of the word did what? Looked intently. I love that word because that word in the Greek means to make an effort. 
Look intently to make an effort. The literal, if we were to translate it literally, that word means to stoop down to see. It's the same word that when Peter came to the tomb of Jesus after the resurrection, Luke 24, verse 12, check this out. Peter got up and ran to the tomb. So he just heard that Jesus rose from the dead. Kind of a big deal. He was excited to go see. It says that when he stooped to look in, Peter didn't come up to the tomb, that tomb they would have probably placed Jesus' body in, this lower type hole. Peter didn't just walk up to the tomb and go, well, that's going to take effort to look in there. What did he do? No, the Bible says that Peter stooped down so he could see into the tomb to see that Jesus wasn't there. That's the same word that James chose to use here in James chapter 1. Now watch this. This is cool. We said a few moments ago that their mirrors would have been pieces of metal pounded out and polished. Think about this. If it's not a perfectly smooth mirror, you know it's going to take effort to see your reflection properly? Think about that pounded out mirror. It would probably have bubbles and wrinkles and not be perfectly flat, not be perfectly even. What does that mean? It means that if you look in that mirror in order to see yourself properly, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to kind of pull one of these numbers until you can catch your reflection in the right light. And then you see yourself. Look intently into the perfect law of freedom. It likely wasn't perfectly smooth. Now watch. The picture James paints for us here is the doer is looking intently into the word to see himself. But notice this as well. James changes the words in verse 25. The one who looks intently into the what? The perfect law of freedom. You know, there's a difference between the law and the law of freedom. In the Old Testament, the law was the rules and standards that God had set out for His people for them to understand that our God is holy. We are not. Somebody's got to fill in the gap for us. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Jesus did what we couldn't do to appease God. God said, here's my standard. We kept trying to meet it and we couldn't. So Jesus did it on our behalf. That's the law of freedom. The law was, we can't do it. The law of freedom is, Jesus did it. Congratulations. That's the difference here. So one says you're a sinner. The other you look at and it says, no, you're a saint in the eyes of God. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Instead, I came to fulfill it. The law of freedom is what Jesus did on the cross for us. That although God is holy because Jesus did what I couldn't do, I can be holy in the eyes of God. Watch this. I I love illustrations, but sometimes I know they're going to fall a little short, but you're going to remember them, all right? We've all been to the circus or a funhouse before, correct? You've all seen funhouse mirrors? Okay, there's two kinds that I think are wonderful. The one is the funhouse mirror that you walk up in front of, and it makes you skinny. You ever seen those? It's because the glass is kind of shaped like this. And some of y'all, you walk up to that funhouse mirror, and you stand in front of it, you're like, ooh, right? You're like, I'm skinny. This is wonderful. But then there's the other kind of funhouse mirror. This is a good one, too. You walk up to it, and the top is a little bit bigger. And because the top's bigger, you can kind of flex your muscles a little bit. It looks like you're all big and strong. Watch this. In both of those mirrors, is that reality? No. But could that be reality? Absolutely. If you work towards it. If you chase after it. Here's the law of freedom. We go into the word of God and we see all of these things and we see for ourselves in the word that this is how Jesus sees me. I was a sinner, I'm now a saint. 
Paul said, I'm seated at the right hand of Jesus right now in the heavenly places. That Jesus loves me beyond all comparison. That I'm so loved, he came and died for me. We see all of these things about ourselves. That Jesus is going to make us and he's forming us. Paul said in Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you is going to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. The law of freedom says, that's who Jesus is going to make me. And I want it to be true now too. And I'm going to mess up and I'm going to fail and I'm going to fall short all the time. But Jesus is still going to make it right in the end. That's the perfect law of freedom. I know who Jesus sees me as and I want to become that with his help. And I'm going to consume the word of God so that he begins to change me and mold me and make me into who he sees me as. And someday when I cross over into eternity, it's going to be complete. That's the goal. That's what it means to be a doer of the word. I want to close with this story. Chuck Swindoll wrote this, and I thought this was a good way to just kind of recap everything James talks about. Here's a lot in this, but I think this recaps it. Chuck Swindoll says, let's pretend that you work for me. In fact, you're the executive assistant at a company that I own that's growing incredibly rapidly. I'm the owner, and I'm interested in expanding my company overseas. But to pull this off, I make plans to travel abroad for a season to stay there while I set up this new office branch that eventually I'll bring my new employees to. I come, I make all the travel arrangements, I make all the lodging arrangements, I'm going to be gone for six to eight months overseas. And stateside, I decide to leave you in charge. Congratulations, you just got a promotion. I tell you that although I'm overseas, I'm going to write to you regularly. I'm going to send you regular emails and updates that will give you direction and it will give you instruction on what I need you to do. So I leave. Months pass. A flow of letters and emails make its way to your desk from Europe, received by the national headquarters. In those letters and emails, I spell out my expectations, what I need you to do in my absence. But finally, I return. I return from my trip, I come back to home base, and after my arrival, I drive down to the office, and frankly, I'm stunned at what has happened. At the office, grass and weeds have grown up all over the place. There's windows in the office building that are broken and worn down. I notice the wastebaskets in everybody's offices are overflowing. The carpet hasn't been vacuumed for weeks, and nobody seems concerned about our business or anything. I ask about your whereabouts, trying to find you, and one of the employees says, yeah, we don't know. He might be down there, but we're just not sure. A little bit disturbed, I bump into you in the hallway, and I say, where have you been? What are you doing? You're like, oh, I was just watching a movie with some of the employees. We had nothing else going on. I say, dude, what in the world's going on here? You say, what do you mean? I say, look at this place. Look what's going on around this office. Didn't you get any of the emails or letters that I sent you? And here's your response. Letters? Emails? Yeah, I got them. In fact, I got every single one that you sent. I actually have them in a file so I can reference them anytime that I want to. You know, ever since you left, what we actually started doing is every Friday evening, I gave everybody a copy of all the letters and emails that you sent. So everybody brings their file here to the office and we actually study them pretty intently to see the things that you've told us to do. In fact, we even took it a step further. So many people were showing up 
on that Friday evening to read through the letters, that we thought it would be more, make more sense to divide them into small groups. And what we did is we took all the office personnel and we put them in people's homes all over the place, and then they bring the file with them, and we study everything that you've told us to do. And you're not going to believe this. Because of that, many of the people that are part of our office now have actually committed to memory some of the specific lines that we thought were the most important from those letters and emails that you sent us. And then you won't even believe it. There's some office folks that went above and beyond. And they memorized entire letters and emails that you sent us. For a moment, you thought, maybe I'd be impressed. And I said, okay, you got my letters. You guys studied my letters. You meditated my letter, on my letters. You discussed them and you memorized them. But what did you do about them? And the employee looks back and says, do? We thought we were just supposed to read them. See the difference? Hearer of the word, doer of the word, makes all the difference in the life of a Christian. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you again for your word. Father, I pray that we take those words that James wrote in the beginning of this section of scripture. Father, that we'd be quick to listen today. Jesus, that we'd be slow to speak today. And Father, that we'd even be slow to anger. Because Lord, we know when we're confronted with truth, every one of us, it goes against the natural inclination of our hearts to receive that. Jesus, I pray that as we leave here today, we would just put down our guard. And Father, I ask you to do a very specific work in us where your word makes its way from our head to our hearts because that makes all the difference. Jesus, I pray now as we sing your word, Father, singing to you, that you'd tilt your ear from heaven to hear our voices today and that it would be a sweet sound that echoes through the corridors of heaven. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand as we sing.